Hello and welcome to another episode of Wood Chat, a Forest and Wood Products Australia podcast. I'm Georgia. And I'm Sam. And today we'll be discussing a range of vital forestry-related projects being conducted around Australia in response to the catastrophic bushfire season of 2019 and 2020. In the face of a climate that is likely to continue to become hotter and drier in the future, bushfires will continue to pose a significant threat to Australian properties, wildlife, land and human life. Consequently, the economic impact of bushfires is also likely to continue to increase. For forestry in particular, the risks associated with fire have the potential to impact plantation companies, native forest managers, wood processors and manufacturers in a variety of ways. In today's episode of Woodchat, we share details of research aimed at increasing the industry's capacity to minimise the impacts of future bushfire events. Sam spoke to Dr Kate Parkins of the University of Melbourne School of Ecosystem and Forest Sciences about some recently conducted FWPA-supported research focused on updating fuel accumulation and fire spread models. There's a lot of evidence that fires in Australia are getting worse and they're impacting lots and lots of assets that we care about. So plantation forestry is obviously one of those. It's a highly economically valuable. A lot of people rely on jobs from this industry and they're very susceptible to fire. They're very flammable parts of the landscape and they're also grown in parts of the landscape that are very fire prone. So the whole point of this work was to help plantation owners identify where in the landscape their highest risks from future fire might be and how those risks might change as the climate changes. So looking beyond sort of just the next fire season, but looking further into the future, trying to help them make decisions about how they prevent really large-scale impacts from future bushfires by identifying where the highest risks might be over quite long timescales. And so that's creating models about the scenarios under a, a changing climate and then applying it to the forestry plantations that currently exist or, or could it apply to future plantations as well? Yeah, absolutely. So the way we try and integrate how the future might look for things like the plantation industry is to utilise a couple of different climate projections. In this project, we looked at two, one that would be characterised by a drier climate and one that would be characterised by a hotter climate. Using these sort of sophisticated models, we can look at how those climate impacts might change the landscape in terms of what the future fire regimes might look like, but we can also look at what this might mean for the potential design of future plantations. It might help plantation owners determine if there's areas that look like they're going to have really frequent fire, they might decide that those areas are no longer valuable to put yeah. plantations on. So this is the kind of thing that we're starting to get out of this work. Being able to predict where these risks are and then taking it a step further to say, if we know these are the risks in the future, what can plantation owners and land managers do from a management perspective to try and combat 
some of these impacts. And that kind of information can be really useful for long-term investments, whether you're investing in fuel management or whether your plantations should be moving toward improving their own early detection of fires or suppression resources. Forestry, it's got quite a unique story when it comes to looking to the future, because it's always had to some degree look a couple of decades in advance, just based purely on the growing cycle. So I guess the more that we can have insight into what the future looks like, the better. So it seems like this sort of research would be particularly pertinent in an industry like forestry. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, fire risk, it is a really dynamic thing. It's going to change over time. It's going to go up and down. And that sort of alignment with the forestry industry that does also work on these sort of dynamic rotations and cycles, that sort of blend of being able to prepare for changes in the future and looking beyond just the next fire season and what we might be able to do to protect assets as they currently are. It's important to think about that whole life cycle of each plantation and rotations. Kate went on to tell me about how this research has actually looked on the ground from a practical perspective. So there were three broad parts to our study. If we start at the end, we yeah. want to know what fire risk is both currently and into the future, and then what managers can do about that risk. But in order to do that, we have to use these models. So these fire behaviour event simulators, but also fire regime simulators. They include many, many different layers about the landscape. And one of the key layers that they use are fuel accumulation models. So how does fuel change over time? And we're very good at looking at the fuel layers that we've got for our native forest. Things like that are really well researched. But for things like the plantation industry, a lot of these fuel functions or fuel accumulation models have been derived from native plantations. And we expected that this is not perhaps going to be a perfect fit for something like plantation because they are dynamic, because they get planted, they grow over time up to sort of, you know, between 20 and maybe 30. 30 years. So we expected to see a bit more variability in how fuel changes over time. And so that was, I guess, the very first part of our project. We needed to get out into the field and do a whole lot of vegetation surveys to collect real empirical data to feed into these models. That involved going uh, all around Australia. We had six study regions. So these were from southwest Western Australia. We covered the Green Triangle across South Australia and Victoria. We had some sampling from southeast Queensland, some areas around Tumut in New South Wales, and then also the top end of Tasmania. What sorts of things are you looking at then when you're actually on the ground and, and in the field? The data that we need for these models that go into our simulators tend to get broken down into different fuel strata. So things that are near the ground, we call our near surface fuels. Then you might have bark fuels, so all the bark on the trees. If there's hardwoods, you have lots of ribbon bark. That's another fuel strata that we characterise. And then there's the elevated strata. So that's everything from about your knee or your hip up to sort of around that end of the canopy, and then also capturing some information about the canopy as well. So our field assessments were very much about capturing the fuel loads or how much vegetation was around in each of those different strata, essentially trying to capture a snapshot of a whole lot of different plantations to see what their fuel load would be. We did this across 
several different species. So predominantly we looked at eucalyptus globulus for the hardwood species and Pinus radiata for the softwood species. And so then that data from those snapshots, does that then get fed into those simulators that you'd mentioned? Yeah, exactly. So one one of the key parts of these simulators is you can kind of think about it almost, I tend to explain it a bit like it's almost like a computer game. So, you know, when you start the computer game, what does the landscape look like? We're essentially trying to create fuel accumulation curves. So we wanted to know at time zero, so whether that's a first rotation or a second rotation, pre-planting, how much fuel is there? And then how does that grow and change and fluctuate over time until that part of the landscape is harvested? That's really the first step, because if we we really need to be able to predict how fuel loads are changing over time to be able to predict what fire risk might be like now in the next couple of years. But then those curves actually also feed into our fire regime simulator, which enables us to look at that really long term outlook. And I guess one of the key parts of this research that sort of has more broad implications is that these models can be implemented into the fire behaviour simulator. So at the moment, it's industry standard to use Phoenix rapid fire. So these curves can be implemented into Phoenix, which means these curves will now be used generally across New South Wales and Victoria to help better predict. So we've essentially improved the models that many, many different organisations are using to predict fire. Then that information gets fed into our program called FROST, which stands for Fire Regime and Operation Simulation Tool. It's essentially the tool that helps us model future fire regime change. And then from there, that enables us to capture current risk and future risk. And then the final step is to bring in a whole lot of different management strategies that were designed by the plantation owners in the regions we were studying. We had huge amounts of engagement with many, many different plantation owners around Australia. And then we can feed them into this model to see how management may or may not change your fire risk. That is really interesting. So it's being able to take a look at those potential steps that could be taken by plantation owners to see how effective they might be in mitigating fire risk. Exactly. Firstly, giving them a snapshot of what their fire risk might look like under almost like worst case scenario. So what is your fire risk in the future without any additional management? And then we can put on top of that their management that they're interested in so that they can start to determine what is the best thing that they can do. And so I guess it would be interesting to to hear from you about what some of the key findings actually were. Did you find that certain management practices under a future climate would be likely to be more beneficial or effective than others? Or does that vary around the country depending on the type of landscape? It was really interesting. I think we expected it to vary regionally a little bit more than it did. In terms of what people can do management-wise, it was pretty uniform across the different regions. What we found was the current management, which was defined by current levels of prescribed burning outside of plantations and current rates of suppressions. They were across the board the best performing management strategy. So what we're currently doing is likely to be very, very important that we continue to do some of this into the future. The influence on the amount of prescribed burning that goes on 
outside of plantations is not something that they've got any influence over. This is very much driven by you know, local RFS and CFA and the state government. The other variable that we looked at that came out second best um, or equal first best in some cases was improving suppression. And so this I guess it can be thought of as almost like a surrogate for things like early detection. So making sure that we're identifying fire starts as quickly as possible and making sure that we've got plenty of resources to get to fires and get to them quickly. So early detection and rapid suppression is probably one of the best things for plantation owners to consider moving forward. And this might be investing in more suppression resources. It might be looking at how they can improve early detection of fires within their plantations or near plantations. But it could also be things like strategically positioning some of their firefighting resources over that you know, fire season. Potentially, they can locate these in areas closer to the plantations that are likely to be of higher risk. There were aspects of undertaking different fuel management. So we also tested things like reducing fuel loads at key times in plantations life cycle to try and mitigate some of those um, high fuel loads. And, you know, if we're thinking on sort of shorter timescales, that information is really, really useful. So we found talking about these these traditional curves that were sort of starting at zero, essentially starting very, very low fuel loads and accumulating very rapidly and then stabilizing. One of the things that we found was that that's actually not really being reflected in reality. What we found was that there were really high fuel loads at that sort of immediately post-harvesting pre-planting. Then we see a bit of a decline over that sort of four to five years and then a very steep peak in some of the fuel loads around that sort of 10 to 15 years. And these peaks in fuel loads can be really useful for plantation owners to target additional fuel management. So maybe there's things that they can look at in terms of residue recovery at that early part of a rotation or more high pruning and actually removing that fuel from plantations We tested two different climate projections, one characterised by a drier climate and one characterised by a hotter climate. One of the key insights from this work is that there wasn't a dramatic difference. So any kind of climate change will result in more impacts to the plantation industry. So I think some of the key things that I hope the industry will take from this are being able to identify within their plantations, within a rotation, where the highest fuel loads are and how they can manage these fuel loads, but then looking forward, identifying the key areas that they can focus their management on and also guiding investment in the future in terms of how they can best protect these assets. Fascinating insights there from fire risk analysis, Dr. Kate Parkins of the Flare Wildlife Research Group based in the School of Ecosystem and Forest Sciences at the University of Melbourne. In addition to Dr Parkin's work, we thought we'd take this opportunity to provide a roundup of other interesting projects around bushfire mitigation and management happening around Australia. First up, David Bowman, Professor of Pyrogeography and Fire Science at the University of Tasmania. David told us about a sophisticated fire detection camera known as Firehawk. Firehawk was previously trialled by forest management and harvesting company SFM as part of its broad 
ongoing efforts and commitment to working with fire. Firehawk has the potential to enhance fire management practices, improve the protection of assets and safeguard the broader community. The Firehawk technology is basically a 21st century version of a fire tower. It was understood very early on in fire management that identifying fire starts in the landscape was an absolutely critical step in landscape fire management. And so very old school technology was to build lookouts on prominent areas, have people getting up very early in the morning in the summers and staying you know, into the evening, scanning the horizon and recording the distance and, and angle to any observed fire. And so if you could do that technologically using sensors, then obviously you're cutting out labour costs and, and you've just got a, a much more uh, automated system. A forest company in southern Tasmania has established this technology and then they have integrated that with a helicopter rapid response system. You know, it's one thing to identify the fire, it's an entirely another thing to have the way of communicating that detection to an aircraft with fire suppression equipment like a water bucket and trying to get the fire out. My involvement has been somebody as an interested observer. The proponents of the response have contacted me and sought my endorsement, I suppose. So I'm just interested to see how it plays out. You know, really, there's two underlying sort of motivations for why a company would be wanting to make these sorts of investments. One is because fire risk is increasing because of higher temperatures and higher aridity in the atmosphere and landscapes switching from being non-flammable to flammable. And then, of course, in forest and particularly plantation forestry terms, there's an insurance dimension to this because these are assets and insurers, they're wanting to know that people are doing something sensible to protect that asset. Although rapid attack is, you know, a very important platform paradigm in fire management, it's necessary but not sufficient. You've also got to do all of the other stuff in fire management, uh, fuel management, preparing landscapes, and also having firefighting capacity for longer firefighting campaigns. And we've got to make certain that we don't take the oxygen away from all of those other important things. We're going to be seeing more of these syntheses of different very sophisticated technologies and fire detection systems are just part of that. So there will be other sources of, you know, using infrared and using things like LIDAR and drones and very detailed mapping and maybe more intelligent design of fire breaks and maybe more intelligent design of, of actual plantations and understanding, you know, the likely direction of fires and, and so yeah. on. So there's a whole revolution occurring. And I think fire managers, forest managers really need to be interested in this technological revolution transition, but not necessarily get completely swept up by it. Elsewhere, Rodney Carter, CEO of the Jar Jar Warung Group, discussed the organisation's focus on and promotion of traditional, cultural and cool burning practices as a means of mitigating bushfire risk. For us as Jar Jar Warung, we describe our fire, it's Jandak We, so it's to put fire back at country and to do that in a useful way 
as a tool. And we look at country around how do we use that tool to manage forms of species. Largely, our fire is really about, um, I describe it as gardening the environment. We're out there tending in many different forms and bringing that fire as the tool to make, you know, country sort of more well. The challenges that we have is the absence from us as a people, uh, like my ancestors, in creating country and this landscape and managing it. For the last 200 years, we've been displaced from being able to be a practitioner, the giver of fire. And what has inadvertently happened through forestry, forest management, country's not in a well enough state that it's easy to give fire. So we've got, sadly, a modified landscape vegetation structures that make it harder for us to not easily give fire. With climate change and what we're seeing with seasonally drier events during peak periods of, of high temperatures that when fire is present it's it's actually quite harmful to country so our challenge going forward is how do we progressively uh, remodify landscape to make it healthy bring food and fiber and then i think consistently start bringing cooler fires to to country to management. It'll probably take decades, if not centuries, to create some greater effect on country, but it's important that we start doing it now because we understand that fire is part of Australian landscape. The way I try and simply explain it, there's connectivity of fuels, things that can be flammable, and that's how fire travels or moves through a flame, through ignition. So what we're proposing to do is to break up the fuels in a local sense by burnt patches. People have described that as mosaic burning. So you you think of these black patches that are burnt that break up connectivity of fuel. If you do that consistently across country and then for fire, it can't easily travel. You know, you want to preemptively be giving fire and doing that as a management tool. And then when we're facing these futures that we don't clearly understand sensibly we're prepared let's actually do some really sensible preparatory work that's founded on you know my ancestors uh, ancient knowledge you know we want we want to remodify landscape so it's it's healthier and it's more conducive to jandek we to bring fire it's actually about putting people back into landscape purposefully and if there's a recipe around this and for 60,000 years, it's worked. It, it must be good. This is where we're using ancient knowledge, reactivating it, fit for now. And finally, Dr. Kevin Tolhurst, AM, Principal Fellow of the School of Ecosystem and Forest Sciences at the University of Melbourne, told us about research focused on the development of an Australian bushfire management framework. The idea was to basically build on a national policy for bushfire management planning across Australia. So that original uh, policy statement was signed off in 2014, but very little has actually been acted on. And so what we've been trying to do, I guess, is develop a set of criteria and indicators for fire management. We're spending hundreds of millions of dollars in Australia every year on fire management, but there are very poor statistics and information really about how well that expenditure is going in terms of achieving improved fire management. 
we fall into a trap sometimes of going down the response process. So money is spent on more aircraft, on more firefighters, but we're not really uh, focusing enough, I don't believe, on improving our management. So we need a few pegs in the sand as to what it is that we're trying to achieve in the, the bigger vision and basically then set some criteria and indicators to tell us whether or not we're actually moving closer to those pegs or not. Fire is such a fundamental part of our environment. It's much the same as wind or rain. So by just use the suppression approach, the response approach, the only fires that we really can't manage are the really big, most damaging ones. And they're the ones that are becoming more frequent, partly as a result of this strategy of suppression rather than continual use of fire in the landscape. One of the things that we can learn from traditional owners is how we actually relate and read the, the country that we rely on so much in a better way and work with the land rather than try to control it or to dominate it. We need to be more in tune with what the, the environment, what the land is capable of producing. So we have to be learning continually as we go, but we've got to make sure that every learning exercise is remembered and involved in the in your next decision-making process. I guess the framework that we've tried to put together is stitch it all up from what we see as the the vision through to what that might look like on the ground. It gives you some objectives that provide key performance indicators. So it's capturing our knowledge from our science, from our cultural connections, from our uh, traditional owners into a a consistent framework. And so that becomes your, your starting point. But then it says, well, What is it that we might need to measure to see whether or not we're actually learning more, whether we're actually moving forward or whether we're actually standing still or perhaps even going backwards in some respect? There are measures there that give you an indication as to whether or not uh, the situation is improving or not. If it's not improving, when you go through the review process, you have to ask the question, is it because I didn't apply my knowledge properly? Is it because I lack knowledge, so perhaps need to do further research? Is it perhaps that I need new tools or new methods? And some of the things that influence the forest owners and the the forest managers is beyond their ability to to change, but they may still be able to influence those through a political system or through government management or even a, a public system. They still may be able to push in a particular direction to say, well, look, this is not something I have influence over, but... We need to have a change in the way in which perhaps people have access to the forest or perhaps uh, about prescribed burning, even though prescribed burning may not necessarily be part of their role. So I think there's a uh, a need in Australia for the, the Commonwealth Government to take a leadership role here in coordinating at a national level the gathering of the data, but also then uh, setting priorities for further research or development or or action to be taken, what this framework does is say, well, hey, this is a a worked up process that could be followed that would then achieve those policy objectives and goals that were stated back in 2014. It's really reassuring to hear about the many and varied ways the industry, researchers and the community are responding to the ongoing bushfire threat to help ensure forestry is best prepared to respond to and make a strong recovery following any future fire events. And with the impacts of climate change no doubt continuing to be felt across Australia and beyond, these sorts of projects are particularly timely and crucial to help ensure the future success and survival of the forestry industry. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Woodchat and we hope you'll join us again next time. <laughs>